Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's panorama was validated in the recently published SMART study, the largest prospective NIPT study, which demonstrated improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions, making routine 22Q11.2 deletion screening possible. Visit natera.com forward slash smart to learn more. Structural variation, the result of extra or missing DNA, is, as we say, common and rare. Rare, because each manifestation is unusual, often vanishingly rare and sometimes unique to a single person. Common, because taken collectively, these idiosyncrasies of the genome affect many people, many families. Today, we're going to have a conversation about one of these categorically important and individually rare syndromes, 22Q11 deletion syndrome. As rare events go, 22Q is not that rare. And the 22Q story is in a way, it encapsulates the history of genetic medicine over the last 50 years. It starts with phenotype and it shows how careful phenotyping can illuminate the roots of pathology Then we make the jump to molecular diagnosis and we see the power and the complications of defining a condition based on genotype. Powerful because treatment based on genotype, personalized medicine can improve outcomes dramatically, but complicated because defining a condition by genotype turns it into a label that someone carries from birth or even in utero. And for individuals and families, that label may feel limiting, uh, stigmatizing, frightening, all of that. We are so lucky today to have with us for this conversation, Donna McDonald McGuinn. Donna is a genetic counselor and the director of the 22Q and U Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Donna is one of the world's authorities on 22QS, 22Q11 deletion syndrome. And she's been working with 22Q families for literally decades. Donna, we have lots of contemporary issues to discuss from drug trials to NIPT microdeletion panels, and I want to get to all of those, but welcome. And let's start with a little history, because it's a fascinating history. If, if you go back to the 1970s, I think it's the 1970s, kids with 22Q11 deletion syndrome um, were being diagnosed with two apparently different syndromes, right? Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about how it came to be how they came to be understood as a single syndrome. Sure, we could actually go back to 1965 when Dr. Angelo DeGeorge, who was an endocrinologist across town, I'm in Philadelphia, he was at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, and he first described children with immune deficiency and hypocalcemia. And later congenital heart disease was added, and that became a classic triad named after Dr. DeGeorge, so DeGeorge syndrome. And as you know, the word syndrome just means collection of findings. And there had been previous descriptions in the literature about this combination of findings, but this was a pivotal moment when people started to recognize it, they started to see it moving forward. And in general, those children didn't survive either because of the immunodeficiency or the complex congenital heart disease. 
Then enter into the 1970s, Dr. Bob Sprinson from New York, a speech pathologist, described children with similar congenital heart disease with some minor facial differences and palatal abnormalities, and he called that VLO for the palate, cardio heart facial syndrome, or VCFS for short, and they were thought to be completely distinct entities. Then in the early 1980s, Dr. Elaine Zakai from here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia saw a patient with symptoms of DeGeorge syndrome who also had a cleft palate and a GI abnormality, a jejunal web, and she said, well, let's send the chromosomes. And sure enough, in the laboratory of Dr. Beverly Emanuel, she saw an unbalanced translocation that included a piece of chromosome 22 missing and a piece of chromosome 10 missing. And so they reached out to their friends, anybody have a child with DeGeorge syndrome and a chromosome abnormality? And it turned out that others had children with unbalanced translocations, but the common chromosome was 22Q. And so Bev Emanuel spent 10 years working on DeGeorge syndrome. She found visible deletions under the microscope in 25% of children, but the puzzle remained, what about the rest? And so she developed fish probes specific to that region. And concurrently, um, Pete Scambler in the UK also developed a fish probe. Um, and they really proved that DeGeorge syndrome was due to a piece of chromosome 22Q missing. Then the overlap was noted with VCFS. We contacted Bob. We did studies in his patients. We proved that they had the deletion. Then, if you can imagine, at the time, we faxed Japan to say the patients with conotruncal anomaly face syndrome, which essentially overlapped with the other two diagnoses, probably had the deletion, and sure enough, they did. And then the Italians with Kaler cardiofacial, which was asymmetric crying faces and the same heart differences. And then we described a subset of patients with laryngotracheal esophageal abnormalities that looked like they had opich GBBB syndrome and they had the deletion. So these seemingly separate diagnoses that were described by different uh, clinicians turned out to have the same thing. So an endocrinologist, a cardiologist, a speech pathologist, um, working in their own areas, nobody saw the big picture until we had the FISH test. So it was, in fact, the genotype that that brought everything together. Uh, it really it really was. And, you know, we had the opportunity for an NIH grant in the early 1990s. And they said, you know, could you get 25 patients with this over five years? And we said, oh, no, it's too rare. We would have to call all of our collaborators and then maybe. And I would say by the late 90s, we had seen 250 patients um, just here because so it was less rare than you thought. It was it was crazily less less rare. Um, and if you've looked at recent literature, not that you're looking, um, but in a newborn screening survey in Ontario, they found the deletion in one in 2,148 live borns. Um, and in multiple prenatal studies now, they've found the deletion and the reverse of that, the duplication, in anywhere between one in 1,000 and one in 1,500 pregnancies. So we've always felt like this is as common almost as Down syndrome, and now we have some proof of that. So under naturalized circumstances, not the where there is no testing and there, there, there is no termination and so on, it would be rarer than Down syndrome. But 
the most common of the microdeletion syndromes? Yeah, it's definitely the most common microdeletion syndrome, and the estimates were anywhere from, you know, one in 4,000 to 6,000 pregnancies. So the new data really brings it much closer to that one in 1,000 of Down syndrome. And, you know, in our practice, because I sit in a children's hospital, we see lots of children with Down syndrome. Now, we are a referral center both for 22Q and congenital heart disease, but for sure we see way more children with 22Q than Downs. And I would guess that a part of why this was a shocking finding was that initially one never understands the range of uh, presentation you get with a syndrome when you define it phenotypically, right? So if you define something phenotypically, by definition, you're setting limits. I'm like, this is what it has to look like. You have to have this or this and this and so on and so on, whatever the, this. but if you define it genotypically, uh, you can include everyone at both tail ends, the most affected and the least affected, right? So it's always going to expand. Sounds like it was to a very surprising degree, but it's always expand. So along with expanding the numbers, it must have also changed what it looks like. So give us some sense of the range of the condition. Right. So we still see that triad of DeGeorge. So most common features being congenital heart disease, immune deficiency, endocrine abnormalities, but also popped up to the top were the palatal differences and not really overt cleft. So only 10% of patients have a hole in the roof of the mouth. Only 1% to 2% have a cleft lip and or palate. The rest have something called velopharyngeal incompetence, where the roof of the mouth or the palate doesn't move well to close off with the pharynx. And so air escapes through the nose and the kids or adults are hypernasal and that affects intelligibility and is fixable. So that's quite common. But then we didn't know that GI abnormalities were really an issue. And so I would say for families, the most difficult problem is not being able to feed your child. You know, new parents feel like a failure to begin with, but add into that that I can't feed my child and it just escalates. Um, And so many, many children end up with reflux. They end up with dysmotility. Things are squeezing in the wrong direction and coming out where they shouldn't. And so a lot of children end up with tube feedings, with G-tubes, with Nissen fundoplications, and they all have, for the most part, constipation, which impacts, you know, the upper GI issues, and that can be lifetime. And we've had kids admit it um, for constipation relatively routinely. Um, And then some atypical findings that really matter, but they're not so common, so in perforate anus, Hirschsprung's disease, intestinal malrotation, that kind of thing. And you say you're seeing these kids. So I'm curious, um, feeding troubles, fussy babies, reflux, very common diseases, issues of the newborn period. Do those kids get to you right away? Uh, If they, if they have congenital heart disease. So we published a paper in 2018 showing that if you have congenital heart disease, you're coming to attention. If you don't, these families go on this ridiculous, I shouldn't say ridiculous, but really difficult diagnostic odyssey, um, protracted diagnostic odyssey. I like to talk about the two physician parents whose child saw 27 subspecialists by the age of five before the 22Q diagnosis. 
So dad was an ENT, mom was an OBGYN. They were relentless in pursuit of a diagnosis. And when it finally came, the geneticist said, well, you know, 22Q has fooled me before. And they bemoaned the fact that their child could have had hypocalcemia early on, which could, in theory, affect long-term outcome. Um, and, and, you know, people started looking at them like they had two heads. Why do you keep coming in with this child who's pokey and who's hypotonic? And, um, and it made all the difference in the world having the diagnosis. So actually um, going to be a question. What do we do for them? Like, aside from the very important feeling of having an answer, uh, what can you then do for a family um, when they have the diagnosis? So for one thing we can do for newly diagnosed patients is follow them from an endocrine perspective. We know that there are children who come to attention via newborn screening for severe combined immune deficiency because they have the same type of T-cell immunodeficiency. And when we looked at those patients, a subset that we saw here, I believe there were 13 that we published, half of them would have come to attention otherwise. The other half would not have, and of that other half, half of them had undetected hypocalcemia. Um, and so there are papers published by Ambassad in Toronto saying that if you have neonatal seizures or hypocalcemia, um, that affects long-term outcome. We actually looked at our own cohort and didn't find that, but we realized we have a pediatric cohort and has an adult cohort, and we're treating our children. Um, so we may be actually circumventing that issue uh, without even having known it. The other thing is that most children with 22Q have delays in emergence of language with mean speakers about age two and a half. So children who can't communicate verbally are incredibly frustrated. So we introduce sign language by six months um, and regular speech therapy. And the minute the verbal speech comes, they drop the signs. But it really obviates some of those behavioral differences that occur when you're frustrated and can't communicate. And of course, OTPT, you know, uh, special education, all the other early intervention therapies, um, as well as looking for causes for, for um, why kids might be irritable. If you're constipated, you're irritable. Um, if you're not feeding well, you're not growing and that affects height. So, you know, there is a reason to take a holistic approach to these children adolescents and adults. Um, what we didn't know way back when are all the behavioral phenotypes associated with 22Q. Not, not only does it give us a window into understanding birth defects like congenital heart disease and palatal anomalies, but we have 60% um, of our patients have really significant anxiety, debilitating anxiety. So it's a window into understanding anxiety, ADHD, autism in a subset and most importantly, it's the most common cause of schizophrenia. So 25 to 30 percent of adults develop psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the things I wanted to get at. Uh, many years ago, um, I did a study with a student of 22Q families and by an overwhelming percentage, they d they described the risk of psychosis as being the thing that worried them the most for their child's future. They also, at that point in time, most often did not learn about the risk of psychosis from the diagnosing medical professional. Uh, 
for whatever reason. It was kind of a new piece of information at that point, the, the mm-hmm. risk. And there was a sense that it wasn't an emergency. They didn't need to say it. It was something that was in the future. And frankly, you got the feeling that people just weren't comfortable talking about it. And they were more comfortable talking about the immediate threats of possibly heart defects, immune compromise, and so on. They didn't want to talk about the psychiatric manifestations of the disease. And unfortunately for many of these families, they learned about it on the internet. They learned about it from word of mouth and so on. Not the best scenario at all. Um, And one that left them really with very little support um, to understand what might happening. Uh, And so do you think that's changed? Um, When do you think is the best time to introduce this discussion? Do you still agree that it's the thing that would worry those families the most and so on? So I'll start with the latter, and there's no question it's the thing that worries families the most. We have made great strides on a research side in trying to understand those individuals who develop psychosis and those don't. I lead, along with Dr. Raquel Gurr, who's a psychiatrist at Penn, the International 22Q and 1.2 Brain and Behavior Consortium. So it's 22 clinical and five genomic sites around the world where we collected patients who were old enough not to have psychosis and those who did, and we did whole genome sequencing to see if we could find anything. And we did find um, polygenic risk scores matter. Um, And we found that things like stress are not good. We found that a decline in IQ precedes the onset of psychosis, things like that. But what we're finding in some of our additional research, that group has morphed into the Genes to Mental Health Network, both of which, by the way, are supported by NIH, um, is that there are probably clues to who's going to develop psychosis much younger. We published a paper recently that suggested as young as six and a half using language scores, we can probably predict, and now using uh, a cognitive uh, neuropsychiatric battery that the GERS developed at Penn, we can probably tell by about eight and a half. So for us, you know, we may never see a patient again. So our feeling is that we want to talk about as much as we can in that initial meeting, including the 50% recurrence risk when the child reaches adulthood and not having an unplanned pregnancy, those kinds of things. Um, But, you know, you have to do everything in a kind and sensitive manner. You know, that that risk of psychosis may be 25 to 30%, but 70% is a much bigger number. So when you present these things, you always have to flip it around. The greatest likelihood is that your child is not going to develop these features. And so um, I think we have to take that genetic counseling approach that we do with everything. I I think we have to be mindful. We have to be kind. But I will also say, even for brand new families with a new diagnosis, they have read everything on the Internet before they've gotten to us. And we'll see them the next day from the time they get the call that they have the deletion. We'll get them right in. Um, but they read, it's out there. And we try to steer families to things like the International 22Q Foundation's website, which is 22Q.org, because there are medical advisors to that group that review everything that's on the website. Um, It's vetted. And so we know that there's not going to be misinformation. And we have a professional society, the 22Q and 1.2 Society, um, which I currently chair, which also works with families and parent organizations to be sure that we're supporting families. We have regular meetings where we have everybody come and talk about all these things. 
And there's no question it's difficult. You know, parents do focus on the medical stuff early on, then they transition to worrying about academics. And then, of course, you know, psychosis and the 50% recurrence risk, as well as independence. Um, And so we have to be there for them all along the journey, right? And that's the one good thing about having a multidisciplinary center that we can be available. And all of our subspecialists know this really well. And that's true at other centers around the world. Um, but it is it, it's it can be a difficult discussion, but it depends on how you frame it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I originally approached that because I was interested in this idea of knowing in advance that you were at risk for mental illness. And I have to say, when I was first doing that, there was a sense of like, well, but. We'll never know from psychiatrists. It was like, we'll never know, you know, at birth. We because even with identical twins, which is true, even one identical twin, for instance, has schizophrenia, I think there's about a 60% chance right. that the other so even exactly the same genes, it's not a hundred percent. but I think we've come to understand that, you know, you mentioned polygenic risk scores and so on, that we are paddling into territory of having knowledge, not about certainties, but about likelihoods and susceptibilities. And so can you say something about these families who are sort of early adapters, unfortunately, uh, pioneers in the realm of knowing in advance that your child has this sort of susceptibility? And how do you live with that? How do you adapt to it? Well, I think the other thing you have to realize is psychiatric illness is treatable, right? So we don't want to hand wave and not detect something early where we know early intervention is always better for everything um, when we could get something, get to something early. And so we also have to say that this is medical, it's treatable, and it's no different than all the other things that we're looking at, keeping in mind that it is, I think families would say, life-changing, But if caught early and treated well, you know, we can get to the to the baseline in general. Um, And that's the goal. Right. We're not going to suddenly eliminate that subset who develop psychosis. But if we can reach them early and we can intervene early, then we'll make progress. And of course, you know, the hope is that we're going to develop better therapies with this knowledge. There's already a clinical trial about to start for kids with anxiety and ADHD um, using a a drug that affects a pathway known to be associated with one of the genes within the deletion. And so if that works, I think that'll be the first proof of principle to exactly what you said in the very beginning, which is precision medicine. Yeah. So Um, I read last spring, I believe there was a Washington Post article that said that researchers have discovered certain drugs work for psychosis in this population that wouldn't be the choice of treatment. You're looking skeptical. I can see Donna. I I have to tell you that we were not happy with the Washington Post article. That is not the drug I'm referring to. Dish away, tell me. (laughs) And, um, And the entire 22Q community wrote to the Washington Post, um, and nothing was published to to respond to that piece. Um, nonetheless, there are novel medications that are being developed that are specific to the deletion. And in the meantime, regular treatment does work. 
Um, we're looking for better treatments, but the existing treatments do work. And the psychiatrists around the world really went berserk with that article. Um, and they, they don't feel like it's a different type of schizophrenia. Um, there are multiple papers in the literature suggesting that it's the same um, and that, you know, it does respond to treatment. And there are multiple levels of treatment. So I think we have to stick with what we know. It's just like fixing the heart. Stick with what we know about fixing the heart, but they're always going to have improvements. And, um, you know, we know that kids with 22Q stay in the hospital longer after heart surgery, and it doesn't seem to be related to immune deficiency or anything else. So, you know, we have to figure out why for those kinds of things. And we're investigating everything at once um, from, from head to toe. Uh, so while we're on the subject of newspaper articles that provoked a, a sort of a controversial response, let's talk about that New York Times article. There was a New York Times article, I don't know now, maybe it was 10 days ago, um, that looked at non-invasive prenatal screening, non-invasive prenatal testing, let's call it an IPT for just simplicity's sake here, that pointed out. So it was an article that, in my mind, it did a good job of demonstrating how the positive predictive values for conditions other than Down syndrome um, are much lower than one would be led to expect by the rather aggressive marketing campaigns that suggest these are near diagnostic in value, right? So that if you have a positive for Down syndrome on one of these tests, very, 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 very likely that that's a true positive. But these tests also now offer microdeletion testing, of which the most common result, of course, is 22Q11 deletion syndrome finding. But if you have a finding of 22Q on an IPT, let's say the positive predictive value is going to be somewhere around 10, 12%, like 90% of the time or close to that, it's not going to be. These are screens. We understand that these are screens, but a lot of people don't understand these screens and the way the, the New York Times talked about it. They kept saying the test is wrong. The test is wrong. The test is wrong. So they were basically saying they're selling them a bill of goods because most of the time this isn't right. As someone who works with these families, what do you think about microdeletion testing via uh, non-invasive prenatal testing? And what did you think about the article? So again, to me, the New York Times article was a little bit like the Washington Post in that, you know, it was a little sensationalized, although there were way more facts in the New York Times article <laughs> than in the Washington Post. I think that detection is important, whether it's prenatally or it's postnatally. We want to make the diagnos diagnosis as early as possible. And people aren't having amnios anymore or CVS. Um, even those who have an abnormal NIPT for 22Q with ultrasound findings often say, you know, I'll wait and have that test postnatally. Um, it's a screen. It's definitely a screening test. My hope is that the next, you know, innovation we hear will be, you know, qPCR or something for fetal cells through the blood, and we're going to be detecting everything. Um, as a test, not a screen, but it is a screen. And, you know, I don't work in prenatal diagnosis, but we have lots of babies who are born a CHOP um, because they come to attention through NIPT and then they have ultrasound findings or not. Then they have a confirmatory amnio or not. 
um, and then they deliver here and um, it changes delivery management. It changes, you know, everything for that neonate. Um, and that's critically important, whether it's because they have congenital heart disease or hypocalcemia or feeding and swallowing issues. I didn't talk about things that you can't see prenatally like a laryngeal web. Um, and then the child ends up trached. So we need children in good hands and we need to, to have them diagnosed early especially in reference to that diagnostic odyssey. Um, so I, I think the NIPT needs to be better. It should be better, but um, a little bit like quad screening. And again, I've never worked in prenatal diagnosis my entire career. They're screening tests and, and none of them have ever been perfect. Um, so for us, for every child that comes to attention vis-a-vis -vis this route, we're happy they came to attention. Doesn't so mean I, not missing people. Yeah, uh, what I sort of felt about the article was what the industry does wrong is not that the test isn't better because if the test could be better right now, it would be right. Like it's 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 it the the, the predictive value has limits, but the industry markets it as correct incorrect, which is misleading. And and I I, I wish they had framed it that way because I think there is a fair criticism of that lab industry that they market it in terms that suggest that this is a diagnosis when it's not a diagnosis. But I actually thought the article fed into that rather than rebutted it because it kept saying it was wrong, which is again, sort of the negative version of feeding into it as a test that's supposed to be diagnostic. Um, instead of shifting the perspective to look, this is, this is not a right wrong situation. This is a suspected, uh, not suspected situation, which would give people a lot of clarity. But I want to ask you a question that's maybe a slightly more difficult question here, which is how, you know, okay, so we transition to using this more often. Um, you're saying there's value in getting that diagnosis early. You do the screening test, you follow up with an amnio and C or CVS then you can make a diagnosis or rule it out. Um, and that there's value in that you just described right from birth, that, that you can have the child already know what, what they need, um, um, better medical environment when they're born. But the other option, of course, is that you can end the pregnancy, and that is widely understood as one of the options offered by prenatal testing. And so to bring in through you those voices of actual experience, do the families that you work with want prenatal te uh, testing for subsequent pregnancies? Well, subsequent pregnancies is a different can of worms, right? So if you have a child with the deletion, the likelihood of having a second affected child, if it's de novo, is as close to zero as you can get without being zero keeping in mind the general population frequency. But there are about a handful of cases in the literature of thought to be germline mosaicism. And we have one case of our own where the family has two children who are affected, neither parent has it, and they deny uh, non-paternity. So, um, you know, we always say to them, look, how, look at how old you are. If you were going to have an amnio for advanced maternal age, have them throw in 22Q. Have an echo no matter what have high level ultrasound no matter what. And if you wanna be completely reassured, 
have an amnio or a CVS. Um, again, it gets back to families don't want to have the needle. Um, and so the other option is NIPT, but again, it's a screening test. And so those are the things that have to be discussed. Certainly, if there's a 50% recurrence risk, if the person's affected, then this is, you know, not even in the equation. Um, but this is what I asked. Sort of is in the equation in the sense that do they feel that they need to rule out the birth of a second child with this condition? Like, how do they so feel as the parents? For affected individuals, yes. we have we have adults who've had PGD. Yeah. Because they didn't want to take the chance of the variability. Um, and so many, many affected adults will have IVF with PGD. Um, and NIPT doesn't work because you don't know what cells you're looking at. If, if it's if the mother that's affected, which is often the case, um, you know, you don't know if you're looking at the maternal or the fetal cells. So they wouldn't do NIPT in an affected adult. And I will also say we a number of adults have come to attention through NIPT, mm-hmm. which I don't think is talked about that often either. Um, and so it, it is useful, but it's a screen and I, I don't disagree about advertising, right? Um, that advertising should be clear. But I think this is a complicated topic. And I think the companies rely on the OBs and the OBs don't have time. And, you know, everything gets lost in translation. So, but, but what you are saying is the families themselves are anxious to avoid passing on or recurrence of this condition. They're not like this is the vast majority. Many of these many of these people are not that sick, right? So we have a number of adults who came to attention after the birth of their affected child with congenital heart disease. Um, Some of them had troubles. Many of them, you know, would think that they didn't. Now, we had one woman who has a master's in family therapy. She has her own practice. And she became so emotional when we shared the results because she said, this explains me and why I needed the tutor. And I always felt like I wasn't working hard enough, whereas my physician sibling and my attorney sibling never needed that. And, you know, we were able to say to her, listen, by anybody else's standards, you have a master's degree, you have your own practice, you're extremely successful. Yes, but for my family, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of what we see in the adults. Now, we have a lot of other adults who, you know, definitely look like they should have been diagnosed. We we have a child who, unfortunately, um, had complex congenital heart disease, wasn't picked up neonatally, went home and had an event and had to be urgently, you know, resuscitated and brought here. And when we met the parents at the bedside, dad had a repaired cleft palate. He had a repaired VSD. He had a learning disability. He was affected clearly, but nowhere in that prenatal history or in the meetings with the OBs did his history ever make anybody think twice about it. So a question, because it's the variability that's frightening for these families, you're saying, which makes sense, right? So they're saying if I, that woman with a master's degree in a practice said like, well, uh, if you could say you have a child with this, they're going to look just like you. She might be comfortable with that. Exactly. How much variability is there within? We know there's a great deal between families, but how much variability is there within families? And second question to add to that, 
Do you think that variability comes from differences in breakpoints? Like, do, do, is there a shift, or do you think it's just you have exactly the same deletion, but there's differences in presentation? So that we see enormous intrafamilial variability, even with identical twins. So to your point earlier with schizophrenia, where you see differences in, in uh, identical twins, we see it in twins with the 22Q and 1.2 deletion. Um, we have a set of twins where one has thyroid cancer, the other doesn't. One has schizophrenia, the other doesn't. So, you know, we need to think broadly about this, right? They have the same genes. Um, so how come? And I think that's always been the interesting question about twins in general. And we need to think about other explanations for this, methylation, for example. Um, and if you look at our twins, interestingly enough, for our identical twins, 40% of the co-twins develop a malignancy. 40%. It's unheard of, right? The dizygotics are like the general population, but the monozygotics, 40%. So um, we have to figure these things out. And, and this cohort provides a, a wealth of opportunity to do that in every direction, including the two where one has schizophrenia. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that paints a real uh, picture of a real limit to the degree that we will ever be able to give more specific information to somebody. You know, there's always going to be uh, a, a very variable range of outcomes. Right. And we can look structurally, right? Um, and maybe down the road, there will be ways to look at epigenetics and things like that prenatally. But right now, we could say major heart disease, yes or no, you know, overt cleft, yes or no. But even in the families where there is a de novo child, you know, affected child, where they have congenital heart disease and they say, you know what, we're going to continue the pregnancy, we can live with the heart disease, and then the child has imperfect anus and ends up with a colostomy, completely different trajectory. Or the child ends up with a laryngeal web that's too big to repair in infancy, ends up with a trach, completely different trajectory. And, you know, the trach gets plugged and then there's a, you know, CNS event. So you can't tell everything. You just can't in that pregnancy. Um, you know, even if you have a confirmatory diagnosis of the deletion and the breakpoints don't help. 85% um, of children have the regular 2.5 to 3.0 megabase deletion, which is about 50 genes. Um, you know, the subset that have smaller deletions, it looks like if you have an A to B deletion, it's a little bit higher IQ, but not much. If you have a B to D or C to D deletion, you have a little bit less in the structural abnormalities because uh, it doesn't include TBX1, which is thought to be, you know, the DeGeorge developmental gene. Um, but there's a gene within that region that also codes for congenital heart disease, which is crackle. So we see the same findings no matter how big the deletion is. Um, but we're always a little bit more optimistic when it's smaller. So we are getting towards the end of our time. And I really want to give you a moment because I feel like the way we started this discussion where you were talking about the great value to families to having this found in a timely fashion and identified and and treated uh, is an argument for including it on newborn screening. 
which is sort of the current discussion, right? So I wanna give you a bit of a platform here to talk about 22Q and newborn screening. So as I mentioned, some children are coming to attention via newborn screening for SCID, which is great. But the SCID people who find more kids with 22Q than SCID are saying, well, maybe we should change the cutoff because we don't really wanna find the kids with 22Q, we wanna find the kids with SCID. So that would not be good for us. Um, the same folks who developed the newborn screening for SCID developed newborn screening for 22Q using qPCR. It's multiplexed, you would even pick up the small deletions. We went down to Washington in 2012 to say we need newborn screening and they said, get us evidence. So we now have the evidence from Ontario with the prevalence of one in 2,148. I've been to the House of Commons in the UK. Um, you know, it's, it's a cost. And so we need to try and lower the cost. It's currently $6 per patient, which is too high for newborn screening. It currently takes a little too long because if you're trying to pick up those children with ductal dependent lesions, you wanna pick it up before the ductus closes. Um, so we still have some work to do, but in our mind, picking up 22Q early is enormously important for all the reasons that we've already talked about. And so our hope is that we'll be going back to Washington again soon to represent this. Um, I can tell you that families have had newborn screening passed in their states, but mm -hmm. there's no mechanism to do the test. So, um, you know, first- There's no state currently doing newborn screening. Are there any states currently doing- No, no place not. on the planet. Oh. Except Ontario, apparently. Well, that was just a small cohort on a research basis. And the negative of that is there was no phenotype data. So they were allowed to screen the blood spots consecutively, um, but they weren't linked to the phenotype data. So we need to do either another study where we have access to the phenotype, or we just need to go back and say, look, there is no reason this shouldn't be added to newborn screening. We need it. It's doable. This is important to families. It's important to children and, um, you know, those kids with interrupted aortic arch type B that go out, go, go home on day of life one or two, and then the ductus closes at day six, seven, eight, they have catastrophic, you know, CNS uh, issues related to stroke, et cetera. So um, we need to save those kids. How how big a percentage of 22Q kids are those, are those individuals? So if you go the opposite way, 52% of children with interrupted aortic arch type B have it because of 22Q. In our overall cohort, the most common defect, believe it or not, is a VSD. So if we were to screen all VSDs, which is one in 100 births, um, it would be quite expensive. But if we do it as part of newborn screening, not so much. Um, in our overall cohort, I'd say only about six. Wait, I don't understand. I don't understand. If we were to screen everyone who had a VSD for 22Q, that's so nobody's doing qPCR clinically in the pediatric population, right? They're doing either fish, which misses the nested deletions, the distal nested speedides and CDDs, MLPA or micro. You're, you're probably losing people because, and you're certainly losing me. So maybe my maybe my audience is following it, but so nested deletion, you're losing a certain number of people using fish. How, how, much of, how much are you getting if you're just using fish? So if you're only using fish, you're missing the B to D and C to D deletions, which is about 5% 
of the pediatric population, if you look at the newborn and uh, the prenatal population, it was higher. It was actually much higher, um, which probably suggests that in pediatrics, those patients are less severely affected and therefore not coming to attention. But in our cohort, um, only 5% have a B to D or C to D deletion, but only, you know, when you do the math is a, is a decent number. Mm-hmm. But so what I was saying is qPCR is cheap, but nobody's doing qPCR on the ped side, right? People are either doing fish or MLPA or microarray, and those tests are expensive. Mm-hmm. If I'm saying qPCR is six dollars, what's a microarray? Eighteen hundred, something mm-hmm. like that. So if you if you screened all newborns with a VSD at eighteen hundred dollars, that's a lot of money as compared to six, which mm-hmm. was my point. And sorry that I lost you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my apologies. So <laughs> what you're saying is you could screen all newborns with a VSD with this $6 test. All newborns in general, including those with a VSD. Uh, right. Yeah, all newborns in general. It doesn't feel like that much money, a $6 test. Uh, it's but- too much for newborn screening, but I'm sure there are ways to ratchet it down. I just have to go back to the to the lab people. And that's the and that's the stumbling block at this point in time. Well, I, I think there those are the two stumbling blocks. One is cost, which is always important, and the second is turnaround time. And then I assume, you know, what these people need is not simple information, but complex information and a lot of counseling. Is there- right. And you would I mean, I would never presume that the QPCR was correct. I would repeat those that are positive mm-hmm. just to be sure. Um, but I can't imagine that they, those would be different, but it's like, we repeat prenatal positives still postnatally mm-hmm. because it makes such a difference in somebody's life, right? You want to be a thousand percent sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. That's sort of where I started off in the introduction. Um, and I think maybe that's my last question. Cause I know that we're running out of time, but you clearly have made a case for the medical utility of this information. I had suggested that the change from phenotype first diagnosis to genotype first diagnosis, that the sort of broadening the spectrum of what is 22Q um, means a lot of people live with this label and anxieties and so on. And I'm just going to ask you, like, again, how well you think people adapt to that labeling. So obviously everybody brings something different to the table and some families are more anxious than others. It's our job to support them. Whether they're minimally anxious or over the top anxious and they need to call, you know, every day until they feel like they have a handle on it or to talk to somebody beyond a genetic counselor, like a psychiatrist to help them deal with it, you know, those services are available. In general, people are able to say, okay, I'm here for my 22Q well visit. You think about all the things. Um, We'll follow up with what you recommend. And otherwise, we're going to live our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that is the goal to to allow families to live their lives, knowing that the child is being cared for, that all the issues are being addressed and that we're growing with them. And it's it's the beginning of a relationship when the diagnosis happens. I feel like this is a condition that is an epitome of something that will benefit from the multidisciplinary center. 
Now, a little bit, I'm handing you a softball here because I know that you run a multidisciplinary center for 22Q. But that isn't the norm for how individuals get their care across the country, is it? We try for it to be. You know, we we only formed this clinic for families. You know, there was a mom in Portland, Oregon, who found out about us and she called and said, can I come? And I said, why would you want to come? And she said, because you've seen more than one patient. Um, and so she made a listserv and people started coming and then the Internet happened. And um, we helped centers form in Colorado and Arizona and California. So there are regional centers that people go to, um, and some of them have more or less, uh, you know, subspecialists in place. We happen to have every single subspecialty in the building in place. Um, but these are kids who need that. Um, and, you know, one thing begets another. If you take the adenoids out and the child had a little bit of VPI, you're going to make the VPI worse. But sometimes you have to take the adenoids out. So if you know that going in, it's important. If you overtreat the hypocalcemia, you end up with kidney stones. So you try and keep that calcium a little bit lower than you like, but, you know, not so low that they're going to have seizures. And so that nuance makes a difference. And um, and I think families, you know, Dr. Zakai, who's the medical director here, always said to me, why do people come? I don't know why they come. And then they'd say how grateful they are and what a difference it made and, and talking to people who they didn't have to explain what it was. And she'd say, OK, now, yeah, I get it. <laughs> we do help them. We are helping them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think it must be so valuable for people. It's um, it is, in essence, a community uh, rather than being alone with your disease. It's a community not only of families, but of professionals. And we have learned so much from each other that, you know, to not have a meeting because of COVID is devastating because we've all become friends where, you know, I hear from the families in Australia and Ireland and, you know, Italy and, um, of course, the U.S. And we feel like family. I mean, if one of my kids were to get married, I don't know, half the half the attendants would be somehow connected to 22Q um, <laughs> because that's just how it's become. We, we had a meeting at NIH pre-COVID called Heart and Soul, and it was 22Q and Williams syndrome. And I couldn't understand for the life of me why they would put these two conditions together. And they said, well, the Williams syndrome community would like to see how 22Q does it. And 22Q does it because we're friends. And, you know, when things are hard, you know, we're rewriting the pediatric and adult health care guidelines right now. We meet once a week. It's it's really laborious. But you do it because you don't want to let your friend down. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all in it together. We share patients. We share data. Um, we talk on the phone on the way home. You know, I call my friend in New York who's in the lab or my friend in Toronto. Um <clears throat> It's it's a different kind of thing. And and listen, I love general genetics. You know, I used to love to go to the ward, not knowing what you'd see when you got there, talking to families, helping with the diagnostics. But this is different. And this has changed my trajectory for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. So you've had an untraditional genetic counseling career in the sense that you're focused on this particular condition. 
uh, and that there aren't a lot of people working on 22Q, but I think a very, very traditional genetic counseling career in terms of the skill set and the ethics and the values um, that are a part of what you're describing there. There's no question, you know, when I talk to families, I have to pull from everything I learned all those years ago at Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and thanks to Joan Marks and and all my friends from Sarah Lawrence, who I'm still friends with. Um, you know, you don't think about it. It becomes part of you, you know, and try to be as non-directive as possible. And sometimes you, you have to be directive about a few things like, you know, you have to keep this appointment. Um I have a, a, a gentleman from out west who calls every year on his child's birthday. I've never seen the patient. They've never come to CHOP. But every year on his birthday, he calls me and says, I just want to check in and talk about my now adult son. Um, you know, there's something very special about having that relationship with patients um, that I don't think you have when you see one and then next and next and next and you send them off. It's different. And as I said, I, I didn't choose to do this. I turned it down twice because why would I want to do, you know, uh, long term chronic care when I had all that excitement in all the other clinics? Um, but it's the best decision I ever made. Well, that feels like a really fantastic place to end. Plus, I know you have to go. And this has been a great story, and I appreciate your. It's 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 extremely current and topical uh, in terms of well, it was in the New York Times last week, right? But I also, um, as sort of someone who's interested in the history of our field and in the history of medicine, very very uh, much enjoyed the perspectives of understanding on a personal level how this has developed over the decades and uh, how we got to the spot where we are now. And it does make me hopeful, right? Um, that I feel like it's a really long arc. It wasn't instantly that having a genetic diagnosis provided better uh, treatments, although it might've provided better care right away, you know, but not better treatments. Um, but if you look at the big arc of the last 30, 40 years, clearly that's where we're headed in the direction of genetics, genetic diagnosis, being able to improve on care. So great let, story. Let me tell you one more story be, be, before I hang up, because if my friend in the UK listens to this and I don't mention it, she'll be sad. So I ran a meeting in 2000 in Philadelphia. So the first big international 22Q meeting was in 98 in Strasbourg. And they asked me to give the keynote, which, you know, I was still in my 30s. I had two little kids. I didn't know what I was doing. I showed up with three, you know, uh, three carousels. And um, that's when I first met folks. And the friend from carousels, Italy, that's slides, kids, that slides, that's that slides. PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> and and the friend from Italy said, um, this doesn't matter. All the kids with this die. And I said, well, maybe they're dying in Rome, but not in Philadelphia. And then another person from France came up and said, just so you know, I'll never collaborate with you because that person that you work with left me off a of paper in the 1980s, you know, 1980. And um, I'll never collaborate. And I said, well, again, using my genetic counseling skills, I wasn't there in 1980. I'm so sorry. But if we ever work together, I promise I'll include you. And I've never left anybody off of a paper since. But um, we had that meeting in 98. In, I volunteered to have the next one two years later in Philadelphia. We had 500 people here and I combined it with the families because 
in Europe, they let like one representative come from the families and then they would have to translate it for everybody else because they didn't want the families in the audience, which, you know, it can be plus minus. But anyway, I had it in Philadelphia. And um, just before the meeting, somebody called me from England and said, my child's born. He has complex congenital heart disease. Um, and it turns out he didn't survive. He passed away at four months. And that mom and her husband went on to form the parent support group for the UK. It's called Max Appeal because the child's name was Max. And she journeyed here to Philadelphia in 2000 to meet me. And she has had a meeting essentially every year since, barring COVID. And I have been there for all of her meetings. She's the one who brought me to the House of Commons. She's in that essentially 22 years now, even though her son passed away at four months. And so it just speaks to the resilience and the commitment of these families to make it better for somebody else, you know, and Julie and Paul have stood on their head to do that. And I do, I feel privileged to be a part of them. I feel like I'm a part of their family. Their daughter, Georgia, came here and spent a, a semester here working on her thesis project um, on 22Q Dupe. Um, and so it is it becomes a relationship outside of work. And if you can do that in your career, um, it makes it all so much, so much richer. Well, that was a lovely story and 22Q information and a little career advice on top. So I know a lot of our audience would appreciate that. Donna, thank and you so much. I love 22Q. Come to Croatia in June. Go to Croatia in June. Croatia or bus despite the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> May it be possible to go to Croatia in June. The next thing to wish for. All right. Thank you, Donna, so, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. And uh, thank you all for listening. Take care and be safe, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by Natera, a pioneer and global leader in cell-free DNA testing. Natera's panorama was validated in the recently published SMART study, the largest prospective NIPT study, which demonstrated improved accuracy and positive predictive value for 22Q11.2 deletions, making routine 22Q11.2 deletion screening possible. Visit natera.com forward slash smart to learn more.